Hey, so my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be with you guys. Uh, I can remember one of the saddest days in my family's uh, life. Uh, it was the day that we drove to Delaware to drop my brother off to college. It was almost like a sitcom. Uh, we got to his dorm, and he turned and looked at us and said, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> my parents tried to find every reason to stay in the dorm for as long as possible. Uh, and finally, we had to leave and walk slowly to the car. I saw my mother's shoulders bopping in the front seat as she cried her way all the way back to New York. Two years later, when it was time to take me to college, I didn't quite get that same tearful <laughs> goodbye. Uh, we pulled up to the dorm, and the car was still moving, and they shoved me out <laughs> of a moving vehicle, threw my bag out of the, the, the window, and screamed something on their way to Olive Garden. True story, uh, I asked my parents, could I go with them to Olive Garden? They said, no, it's on the way to the highway, and we don't want to get caught in traffic. <laughs> now, there are two plausible explanations to that. Uh, one is something I would probably need to walk through with a trained counselor with my parents, is that they like my brother more than they like me. Uh, the second explanation is that difficult things, no matter how difficult, get easier over time. That there are things that would have brought us a great deal of pain and heartache, but the more we engage and the more we do them, they just get easier over time. Now, last week, we kicked off our series on the gospel and race, and uh, we dove straight into some pretty uh, heavy topics, and it was a, a challenging time for a lot of people because of the rawness of emotions and concepts and things that it brings up. Here's my hope for today and for the rest of this series, that as difficult as it is to take the lid off of some things and to explore uh, some of our, our nation's dark history, uh, that we would find it easier and maybe even more rewarding. Now, one of the things that I can't stress enough is that this is a series that we have planned, not just a set of isolated messages. Uh, I know a lot of times people kind of jump in and out to this church, to this series, and one of the things that I would, I would so recommend is that you would go and check out our podcast online to, and stay current with us to, to, uh, to hear every message because we are truly building one on another. And I would hate for you to say, hey, why didn't they say this or why, why didn't they say this when in, react, in actuality we might have covered it or plan to cover it at some point in the future. So to the extent possible, I would love for you guys to go on our website and our podcast and make sure that you're current. Uh, with every message that we are doing. Now, we're going to jump straight into today to some pretty tough stuff. Uh, it's interesting. Whenever the conversation of the gospel and race comes up, one of the, the first conversations that comes up, uh, it came up in my community group this past week, is how could Christianity be so great if it was used, used as a tool of oppression? The slave owners and the slave captors weren't just bringing guns to Africa, they brought Bibles. In Ghana, there are uh, chapels right next to the places where they captured people. People were sitting down to worship Jesus and then going to capture people. Let me know if you've ever heard anything like this. Uh, the reason that you are a Christian is that Christians kidnapped your ancestors from Africa, brought them over here as slaves, then indoctrinated them and with the religion of the conquerors, they forced your ancestors to accept Christianity because it served the interest of those in power. 
Now, the same thing could be true for Native Americans, Asians, and Latinos. If Christianity spread through war and violence, then how in the world is it something that you want to give your life to? For our white brothers and sisters, uh, why would you want to spend the rest of your life following something, following something and investing your life in something if it was just used as a tool of oppression? Wouldn't, you want to, wouldn't all of us want to run away as far as possible from this thing that has been used as a tool of violence and oppression? Now, a lot of people wrestle with the notion that if Christianity was a tool of oppression, why would we continue to give our lives to it or to pursue it in any real way? Now, there are at least three reasons that we're going to cover today of why the gospel is the best hope for all people, always has been and always will be the best hope for people in every single culture, in every single context. Now, what we hope to do today is to give you some ammo that the next time you're somewhere and someone is talking crazy about Christianity, you'll be able to clap back quick like, yo, son, I did my Googles. I know, where I'm, I know what's up. Uh, the first reason why I truly believe that the gospel is the best hope for all people at all times, uh, notwithstanding and including knowing the history of what happened 1,500 years after Jesus and after the church were established, uh, first and foremost is this. You cannot ex uh, force anyone to embrace Christianity. You cannot force anyone to become a genuine Christian. Now, one thing that I hope that we're going to do in this series is not just that we'll talk about different uh, difficult topics and, and engage in um, some conversations more deeply, but that you and I would grow to have a better understanding of what the gospel is through the lens of race. And here's the truth about the gospel. No one can force you to become a Christian. Christianity is not that shallow. It is not as shallow as a decision that someone made based on the information or the oppression presented to them. When Jesus and the earliest apostles spoke about what it took to become a Christian, they always spoke about it in much more profound and beautiful ways than a decision that someone came to one day. Jesus talked about it in, a, in terms of a new birth. Uh, in John 3, Jesus was um, approached by a religious leader, and he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit uh, eternal life? And here's what Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going so it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing about the, the concept of being born again. I know it's a Christian-y word that if you grew up in church, you probably heard it used and abused in some ways. Uh, but at its, at its core level, what it's basically saying is this. Nobody decides to be born. Nobody makes up in their mind one day and bargains to be born. No one um, uh, is able to demand or control your bo your being born it's just something that happens to us outside of our own decisions and in, um, in so many cases, even our knowledge. Uh, one of my friends uh, had a, a child when he was young. He was in his early 20s, and now he's my age in his mid-30s, and he went up to his son, who's now a teenager, and said, hey, listen, I'm just going to put you on punishment because 
When I was like 21 and I was trying to be in them streets, I had to stay home and wipe your little nasty butt and I couldn't go out to the club. I couldn't have fun. And now I'm just going to put you on punishment. Uh, the son looked at his dad and said, Dad, I didn't ask to be born. When Jesus says that you and I must be born again to enter into a relationship with God, what he's saying is, it is not within your capacity or ability to choose this by yourself. Christianity is not as shallow as a decision that you have made one day. It is something much more profound and deep than that, and nobody can force you to be born again. Now, a lot of times, whenever we talk about this, uh, the first objection that people have is, well, what about free will? Doesn't God give us free will to make the, whatever uh, choices and decisions that we want to make? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, I want you guys to do this uh, as a little thought experiment. For those of you who have a dog, I want you to uh, lay out some calculus textbooks in front of the dog. And I want you to leave the dog off the leash and out of the, uh, the kennel, and I want you to let the dog have free reign of the house to do whatever that dog wants to do, and come back in a, in a few hours. Here's what you will not find when you come back four hours later. That dog will not be barking A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That dog will not have figured out the Pythagorean theorem. Although that dog has free will, it is above his capacity, it is above his ability to, uh, to understand calculus. When Jesus says that we have to be born again, he's saying it is above our capacity and our ability to just simply decide on this. One of the things that we worked so hard uh, doing in our Ephesian series was to lay some of the groundwork of what the gospel is. It is our response to God's actions. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, here's what it tells us uh, faith in Christ looks like. It says, for he chose us, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. The story of Christianity, in order to become a Christian, it is not someone forcing you to do something, but it is that God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified you. All throughout Scripture, it is never as shallow as a decision. So respectfully, you cannot force anyone to truly embrace faith in Jesus Christ, nor can someone inherit it just because a grandmother did it. To say that Christians were just... Uh, that your ancestors were just forced to become Christians is completely uh, intellectually dishonest to even approach it that way because the core of Christianity says it was never about you just simply making a decision. It was never about your mental assent and just saying, yes, I agree with these things. Let me check these boxes and sign it at the bottom. It is much dip, uh, deeper than that. It's not a mental exercise. It is a spiritual transformation. Uh, number two, the reason that I have confidence that the gospel is the best hope for all people at all times uh, uh, is because our early African-American uh, Christians made the distinction between the Christianity of the slave masters and the Jesus of the Bible. Early African-American Christians made a distinction between the version, the corrupted version of the Christianity of their oppressors and the Jesus of the Bible. It is a myth that African American, that my African American ancestors just uh, were ripped from their uh, country, brought through the Middle Passage, put on auction blocks, and then said, oh, yes, master, please, I'll have another. I love everything that you're telling me. It's not just a myth. 
It's disrespectful. Basically, what you're saying is, my ancestors were so stupid that they just bought everything, hook, line, and sinker, from their oppressors. If you were to do research and read about the men and women that came to faith, they had a very clear distinction between the Christianity of their oppressors and the Jesus of the Bible. Frederick Douglass, one of the most, uh, the most famous abolitionists, says it like this, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I, therefore, hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. Here we have a religion and robbery, uh, that, religion and robbery the allies of each other, devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presenting the semblance of paradise." Frederick Douglass, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> to believe that the early African-American Christians embraced the Christianity of their slaveholders is factually incorrect. What is correct is that whenever a Toussaint Louverture, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, the, the men and women that embrace faith in Christianity, they weren't receiving Christianity, keeping them in their uh, oppression. It emboldened them to fight for freedom. When Harriet Tubman became a Christian, she realized that what God was calling her to do was to free herself and everybody else she could free. Early African-American Christians had a very clear distinction between the fake representatives of Jesus and the gospel that we find in the Bible. And it would be a... a intellectually dishonest to say that my ancestors just bought everything hook, line, and sinker. They knew how to tell the difference between the representatives and the actual message of Christ. Now, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself and others rejecting uh, the gospel uh, because of some of its terrible representatives. And make no mistake about it, uh, history is replete with examples of men and women that have done horrendous things in the name of Jesus. Every ism and certainly every ill known to man, I'm sure you can find an example of someone who comes in the name of Jesus doing horrendous things. Uh, I remember years ago in uh, North Carolina, the church I was going to, uh, the pastor shows up one Sunday and said, hey, y'all, the Lord has given us this building. And everybody clapped like, yes, we're getting a building for the church, um, but he hasn't given it to us. We got to pay for it. And we're like, all right. So uh, you know what we did? We put the thermometer on the wall. And uh, to see how much we had to go in our fundraising. Uh, he took it to the next level, though. This was like, this is like 400-level stuff. Not only did he have a thermometer, he brought a wheelbarrow into the church, spray-painted that joint gold, put some dirt inside of it, and said, sow your seed. Yes. And people lined up, and they gave. People on fixed income gave. People bought everything that he was saying. They believed that God was going to do something special in our congregation. And I'm not kidding you. A few weeks later, he showed up to church in a brand new Mercedes Benz. 
God says we're not going to buy the building anymore, y'all. But he had a Benz to show for it. The worst part about that is I have some friends who stopped going to church altogether. They lost faith. And uh, they lost their relationship and their connection to the church and subsequently their relationship with God because they were so hurt and traumatized by what that representative had done in the name of Jesus that they didn't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. I would, I would hate. I would hate for you to reject the gospel and all of its beauty because some of the representatives who came in Jesus' name have done some really horrendous things. But those people do not represent Jesus. And I wouldn't want you to dismiss it based on a terrible representation of what it actually is. I realize that I'm getting older and older based on two things. One, um, I've had to get several tutorials on how to use Snapchat, and I, and I still don't fully understand. I was talking to some, a teenager here, and she was explaining it to me, and then stopped me and said, but hey, you're not going to actually use this, right? Because, I mean, you're like my mother's age. Why would you use this? Secondly, I know that I'm getting old because I have turned into that back-in-my-day type of dude whenever I'm talking about music. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I grew up on Nas, Biggie, Jay-Z, good Kanye before he was crazy. <laughs> and now, if you were to dismiss rap music based off of Migos, based off of some mumble rap, I would say, yo, bro, I get it, but I don't even know what means. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't. What does it, what does it, like, why is it used in songs? <laughs> Listen, I would hate for someone to dismiss something that could be beautiful and profound based on a poor representation of it. And the Christianity that the slaveholders and colonizers used was no more genuine than that building campaign in North Carolina. Uh, it was a fraud. It was a phony. It was corrupted, and it was not the gospel. And I don't want you dismissing the beauty of the gospel and its power to redeem all people at all times based on some really terrible representations of it. Uh, third thing that's of ultimate importance is this. The gospel has thrived all over the world for well over a thousand years prior to American slavery or any oppression. Pentecost established that the gospel is for every culture without the need for oppression. Now, Pentecost is a time that happened 50 days after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. 50 days is a very short window. It's the normal time in between Nick's wins is about 50, 50 days. Um, and here's what happened in those uh, immediately after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. We see it in Acts 2 and 5. It says, now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, uh, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and part of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. The first miracle of the church, the absolute first miracle of the church, was to immediately decentralize the language of the gospel so that everyone 
could have equal and immediate access to it. There was no power group that, was, uh, that needed to be relied upon in order to disseminate the gospel, but the first act that the Holy Spirit accomplished in the church was to create a beautifully diverse family of God, all hearing the gospel in their own language. Why was Luke so cautious to go through all of the different types of people that heard it in their own language? I believe that God did this very deliberately because in order for the gospel to truly be for everyone, something that can truly bring dignity to all people, there can't be one place or one culture that dominates it. So the first thing you see here in Acts 2, the first miracle of the church, was that the gospel was immediately decentralized and put into everybody's language. This gospel is the best hope for all people at all times, and it did not need slavery or oppression to spread the word. That word was fully established at Pentecost. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's a pretty profound concept. Uh, there's an African professor of missions at Yale uh, by the name of Laman Sane, and he has a number of books. All of them are pretty excellent. And he talks about uh, this one concept that if you think about it, Christianity is the only religion where there is no center and thrives wherever you put it. Every other religion, it has a center. It has a place where it started, and the majority of the adherents still live in that area. Hinduism started in India. The vast majority of Hindus live right there in India. Uh, Islam started in Mecca. Mecca is still the center of it today. The vast majority of adherents live around that center. Buddhism started in the Far East. The vast majority of Buddhists live uh, immediately in the vicinity of where it began, but that is not true of Christianity because of Pentecost. Christianity has no center. Uh, the original center of Christianity was the Middle East in Jerusalem, but then the Greeks embraced Christianity and it moved to the Mediterranean world, to Alexandria, to Northern Africa, to Rome, where it stayed for a number of centuries, later to Northern Europe and now the, in the Western world where the center has rested. But recently it's shifting again to Africa and South America and China, which will be the hubs in the next coming years. Now, here's the, the profound truth about this. Christianity thrives wherever you put it. It thrives in Africa, and it has thrived in Africa for well over a thousand years before the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria showed up. It is historically inaccurate to say that Christianity began in Africa when slave owners brought their Bibles over there. You see this in the first gathering of Christians, uh, the first members of the church that were formed here in Acts 2, representatives from all over the known world. Uh, and even before, the, even before Acts 2, you see how Africa has played a role all throughout Christianity. When Jesus was first born, uh, it says uh, King Herod was after to kill Jesus, and he was jealous that this newborn king of the Jews was coming, and he was jealous that Jesus might come and steal his throne. So an angel of the Lord goes to uh, Jesus' parents and says, get up and take your child uh, and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Jesus' parents, directed by God, sought out African soil to protect them. Now, not just that, but uh, in the early church, uh, following Pentecost, um, there was so much of the church history rooted directly in Africa. In the first uh, non-Jewish conversion you see in Acts 8, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was the treasurer for Queen Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. 
Now, tradition has it that that same Ethiopian eunuch brought back the gospel to his African nation, became a bishop in the church, and there preached the gospel until he was martyred for his faith. Here's why this is so huge. When God started the church, men and women from every corner of the world, Asia, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, were all a part of it from day one. Christianity did not need the slave ships to bring any message to you. And if anyone says that it came as a result of that, they do not know their history. If you look at the map of the breakdown of the location of the men and women that embrace faith in Jesus in Acts 2, you see the Parthians and Medes and Elamites were probably around modern-day Iran. Mesopotamia and Cappadocia, Phrygia, Pamphylia are a part of Syria, uh, Egypt, Cyrene, which is in northern Libya, Cretans, which were the Greek Isle of Crete, and the Arabs from present-day Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, Muscat, and Aden. Now, it was from this diverse group of people that God built his church. It is from this beautifully diverse group of people that God built his church. And when we say that the gospel is the best hope for all people at all times, we're saying that because if you look at the genesis of what God started, you don't see oppression and violence. You see God, by a very deliberate miracle, establishing that this is for everyone. Now, in the next couple of hundred years, uh, subsequent to uh, Pentecost, what you see in church history is a beautiful outworking of God's spirit in people from all over the world. And many of the original church fathers, uh, also sometimes known as the Desert Fathers, were men born and raised in Africa. Do some research on these names. Uh, Tertullian, Origen, Augustine, and Athanasius. These were all early men and women, part of the early church, Desert Fathers, born and raised in Africa. Christianity did not need oppression and violence to bring the gospel to them. It had already been there for over a thousand years. I don't know if you've ever heard of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coexisting at one time. Uh, that theology came from Athanasius. Every single time someone has been baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian theology came out of Africa. Every seminary across every part of the country and the world, on one side or the other, is debating the Trinity. Theology, the gospel, have been embedded in Africa for over a thousand years, well before any history of oppression or, or colonization took place. And to say that it was brought over by slaveholders or colonizers is historically inaccurate. Now, not just Christians, uh, Christianity didn't just come to all over the world early on, but it has also thrived um, in every part of the world that you put it. And author, again, Laman Sane has his perspective as to why uh, Christianity has thrived all over the world. Uh, and he gave some really, uh, some really interesting insight into why Christianity uh, has thrived in Africa. Uh, and he says it like this, when Africans began to read the Bible in their own language, many began to see Christ as the final solution to the historic longings and aspirations as Africans. And he writes, Christianity answered the historical challenge by a reorientation of their worldview. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred, nor their clamor for an invincible savior. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. 
Now, Lamentane goes through and he gives a, a little bit of a snapshot in terms of how Christianity uh, embedded itself in the African tradition and how it is not something that is external, but it is something that is deeply internal in everything uh, that they are. Now, there's something uh, in certainly not every African culture, but in many African cultures, something called ancestor veneration, uh, and it was in Black Panther, so you know it's real. Um, <laughs> And what I'm going to say might be a little bit of a spoiler, but if you haven't seen Black Panther yet, then you shouldn't be a part of this church anymore. <laughs> you have to see it before next week or else we're not going to let you in. Uh, but there was a scene when the kings were buried, and when they were buried in the sand, uh, they could communicate with the ancestors. Now, communicating with the ancestors uh, was something that's deeply African, uh, and there's a, there's a number of functions that ancestors would do uh, in ancient African culture. One is to appear to people in dreams and visions to deliver messages from the spirit world, to intercede for the community's needs to God, and also to act as mediators between the living and God. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. When the gospel comes to a place, it doesn't throw away their culture. It shows them how their cultural longings from all of history of all of history, are actually found in Jesus. In Acts 17, where Paul goes to a, a, a group of Greeks, um, he comes to them, he says, listen, I see that you guys, men of Ath uh, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul didn't come with his prepackaged Jewish understanding of God. He brought them the gospel in the way that they had historically understood God. And this is why the gospel is the best hope for all people at all times, because it doesn't expl explode your culture. It doesn't throw away your culture. It shows you that your cultural and historical longings are actually found in truly alone Jesus. The gospel doesn't destroy Africanness. It actually enhances it. Now, the Christianity that came to Africa through other Africans did not say, your way of life is stupid, and you should be more European in your understanding. It came to them and said, you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. Oh, you, you want an ancestor that's going to connect you to, the, uh, to God, but it's not your grandfather. It's not your great uncle. The one that you've been longing for and looking for for all of history is actually Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, it says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus is our true and better ancestor. Through his familial relationship with God, you and I can fellowship with God through Jesus, our true and better ancestor. And we see later on, Jesus uh, appears to people in visions and dreams and delivers messages. I hope you guys have been following along our, our community Bible reading, and we've been in the book of Acts, and we see uh, how Jesus uh, appeared to people in the first century. Uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to Paul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Later in the next chapter, Jesus appears to uh, Peter and says, Peter, he lays down a, a, a sheet full of animals and says, Peter, don't you dare call unclean what I'm calling clean. And Jesus was communicating with him to let him know that Gentiles or non-Jews would now be brought with full acceptance into the church. Jesus, our true and better ancestor, talks to us. He, gives us. he came to them in visions and dreams. 
It wasn't destroying the African context that uh, it was, it's a silly thing to think that ancestors can communicate. They're saying the one you've been looking for all along is Jesus. Jesus, our true and better ancestor, intercedes for humanity. As Paul says in Romans 8.34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Jesus is the true and better ancestor for us that is at God's hand right now, interceding for those of us who place our faith in him. And even better, Jesus is our mediator. As scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. All along, Jesus does not destroy the understanding of it. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything people have longed for. And that's just one snapshot of one society, but you can do that in almost every, in, in every context that the gospel truly is the best hope for all people at all times. It doesn't destroy your culture. It defines your culture. It tells us that the thing we've been looking for all along is found in Jesus. And the gospel has thrived in Africa and Asia and Europe for hundreds of years, well before oppression, because it truly is the best hope for all people at all times. You want to know how Christianity thrived in the, in, the, in the old world? Before Constantine made Christianity the state-sponsored religion, uh, Christianity thrived with men and women who had been so personally and deeply affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ that they lived in some super countercultural ways. There's a plague that happened in around 251, and it says, uh, history tells us that during this plague, uh, so many people were dying, about 5,000 people a day were dying. But during this time of this massive plague, Christianity spread like wildfire. Why is that? It wasn't because they had churches with really dope graphics and uh, a nice stage with well-lit um, curtains behind preachers. It happened because Christians were the only ones who weren't afraid of dying. So when everybody else was running out of town and deserting people who were sick, Christians are running into the town to help them. The gospel has spread all over the world, not by sword and plunder, but it spread by people who have been personally and deeply affected by Jesus, who were going out and living in radical and beautiful ways. And that's the gospel that we want to shape this community. Uh, quite honestly, I'm not interested in even theological debates, more so than I'm interested in a personal apprehension of this gospel message that actually does something to your life, that redefines your life, that gives you a new motivation on how to live, that gives you a new boldness in your prayer life and confidence that you can come to God and you are uh, allowed to come to God, not as an, a stranger, but as God's child. Now, I'd be remiss if uh, as we talk about the gospel and we talk about uh, all these different conversations, I didn't first just make sure that everyone in here knew that, listen, the gospel is not something that you can simply decide on, and maybe when you were seven years old, your grandmother pressured you to walk to the front of church and, uh, and give your life to the preacher's hand and all these different things, but you've never really truly felt this new birth that has transformed your life. I, I don't want you to leave today untouched by the gospel. There's a couple of things that you can do. I, I would love for you in your connection card to uh, check the box for more information about baptism, and one of the pastors will reach out to you to talk to you about what your next step in faith could look like, that the gospel would move from theoretical, a decision, to personal and deeply transform transformative in your life. 
Also, uh, you don't have to wait to do it in your connection card. You can talk to me or to Lester or uh, one of the people on staff at the church, and we would love just to talk to you about what that next step of faith could be like in your life. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, uh, we come to you uh, with full confidence, God, that you uh, inspire us to live a much better life than some of the representations that we've seen passed down through history. God, I pray for confidence and boldness in your gospel message that it's not something that is a tool of oppression, but rather, God, it is a beautiful thing that can change our lives. Father, I pray for this community as we continue to march through this series, uh, God, that you would give us grace upon grace uh, to, to be gentle with ourselves and to each other, and God, that we would uh, grow more and more uh, confident in you and grow more and more gracious with ourselves and each other. We ask this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.